All right. Okay, so the message this morning is entitled 10 Reasons I Choose Not to Respond to My Critics. As you can see, we're taking a break from our series in John's Gospel. And uh, this is just a one-off this morning. And, uh, you know, when I announced that I was speaking on that, immediately people start asking, oh, who's criticizing you? <laughs> well, I want to assure you this is not a reaction to, uh, you know, to anything that I'm going through. There's no one that I'm aware that's criticizing me at the moment. <laughs> but we all are subject to criticism. And, um, you know, especially as a pastor or a leader, uh, anyone that is just can't handle criticism should think again about whether they're meant to be in leadership because it comes with the territory. Amen? But um, 10 reasons I choose not to respond to my critics. Um, criticism is a, a devastating thing, or joking aside, it, it's a debilitating thing. It saps the energy out of you and uh, some people just throw in the towel when they're constantly criticised. In fact, I shared with you last week, didn't I, about um, one social media platform that has been taken to court at the moment because two people, two young people, committed suicide because of constant criticism online. It's a dreadful thing and uh, it's a shameful thing. And, and so even, even here, to, uh, last week, one or two people mentioned to me different things they were going through and how they came under attack for no reason. No reason. People just come after them and criticise them and judge them and, you know, they go away thinking, what was all that about? You know what I'm saying? And, and so this is an important subject and we all have to deal with it. So I, I do hope and pray that um, even one of the things that I share might be helpful to you. Now, 10 reasons. I choose not to respond to my critics. Now, you might say, 10 reasons? How long are we going to be here? Well, I don't respond to that criticism. <laughs> I choose not to respond. No, we'll, we won't be too long. We'll, um, we'll just be the normal length of time that we take to share. Okay, so here we go. The first reason that I choose not to respond to criticism is because Jesus did. He chose not to respond to criticism. Therefore, because he did, I can. Amen? Because he now lives in me. It's his life that lives in me. This is not some kind of um, uh, thing that I'm learning to do in the power of the flesh or my own energy, but it's experiencing his life in me flowing out. He chose not to respond to criticism, therefore now I can. In fact, 600 years before he was born on earth, this was prophesied of him by the prophet Isaiah. He said, that he said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Amazing. Amazing. Charles Simeon, who was a, uh, a preacher in London, I think in the 18th or 19th century, he said that you know, a, a sheep before its shearers is dumb and a lamb even licks the hand of the one that will slaughter it. What a beautiful picture that is of Jesus. The gentleness of Jesus and the fact that he did not respond to those who accused him. Here's three examples of that brought before three different people. First of all, the high priest and the Sanhedrin. He said, the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus 
kept silent. Wow, powerful. Then he was brought before Pilate. Pilate went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And again in Matthew, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate, Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered not one word so that the governor, as Pilate, marveled greatly. And so he would, because you, this is his time to defend himself, and to save his life. This is the only chance he's got to speak for himself in his own self-defense. But he answered not a word. Quite amazing. And then, of course, he was brought before Herod. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Now, Jesus was meek, but as we know, meekness is not weakness. Amen. Meekness is strength under control. He had the ability to strike back, to um, get even, to take revenge, but he brought it all under self-control. That's meekness. In fact, the Greek word for meek is the word praus. Praus, it means strength under control. Uh, praus is often used in non-biblical literature for taming wild animals. For example, uh, horses. Now a horse, you know, until it's broken in, it's a wild. It's got a strong will and it does what it wants to do. Isn't that right? But someone who is able to break it in and then, then, then that animal learns, even though it's got a wild nature and a nature of its own, it learns to answer to the reins. And if it wants to go this way or that way, according to the writer, it, it will respond to that. That's the meaning of the word meekness. It has the ability to, to be strong-headed and to take matters into one's own hands, but it's, long, it's learned to answer to the reins, the reins of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not attack his enemies. Instead, he died to save them. And that's the life that he gives to us. He gives his meekness to us. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the word meek or the word prouse. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus brings us into that place, it does truly bring rest to our souls. When, when you can be silent, when you're accused and, and attacked and so on, there's a beautiful rest that is only described as being supernatural that comes upon you. And so that's the first reason I choose not to respond to my critics. The second is this, that my critics do not define me. Christ does. Amen. We just saw that in that beautiful example about identity. Words are powerful and they can be powerfully destructive, but they may give a false identity message. See, criticism often goes further than describing behavior. It goes on to define people. It doesn't say you did this or you did this, but it says you are this or you are that. And we can go away from criticism taking a false identity message. But it's not our critic who defines us. It's Jesus. 
It's who we are in him. We are a new creation. It's what he says about us and not what our critics say about us. That is the truth. Amen. We are righteous because he says we are righteous. We are holy because he says we are holy. We are loved of God, beloved. Amen. Because he says we are. It's who he says we are that is the truth about us. Now, when we respond to criticism, we actually give significance to that criticism. You think about it. So if you do not respond to your critic, you're giving them no significance. You're basically sending a message that has no significance to me. You can say what you want. I know who I am in Christ. Someone else's opinion of you does not have to become your reality. In my book, um, Grace Roots, I share this example, and I've shared it here a couple of times. I love it because it really illustrates this point well. There was a couple of art critics standing in the Louvre Art Museum in Paris, looking at a painting and critiquing it. They were really tearing it apart, you know, criticizing it and saying, you should have done this, should have done that, should have put more there, blah, 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 you know. And, and while they were doing that, the janitor was walking up and down, just sweeping the floor and hearing all this criticism. And in the end, he couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> he said, excuse me, gentlemen. He said, that painting is not on trial. It's been examined. It's passed the test. That's why it's hanging here. You're on trial. <laughs> You're on trial. And friends, I want to say this. You are not on trial. You've been examined, you've passed the test, you are the righteousness of God in Christ, and you sit there in God's art gallery. Just like all those wonderful trophies of grace in Hebrews chapter 11. I always marvel at that. You know, you've got people there like Samson, whose life was a mess, if you're honest. But the, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. The only thing the Bible comments on is faith. Nothing counts but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Looking away from yourself, looking to Jesus. That's what counts in the end. Nothing is said about David's adultery. Nothing is said about Moses' murder. But by faith, these ones did this. Nothing is said about Abraham's lying and courting his wife, his sister, and all those things. But by faith, Abraham. The only thing that counts is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Your critics do not define you. Christ does. Number three, by responding to your critic, you actually become like your critic. That's what the Bible says. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. <laughs> he will drag you down to his level. Henry Ford, a very successful man, you know Henry Ford, who started Ford Motor Cars, said, I will not let anyone destroy me by making me hate them. I will not let anyone destroy me by making me hate them. And that's what happens with criticism is that it drags us down to the level of the critic and we start engaging with them on their terms and we become like them. Amen? Somebody put it this way. The criticism is like volleys from the valley. Volleys, people in the valley who are content to stay in the valley and, and not progress in their life, but they're hurling volleys at you. 
throwing stones at you. Now, if you turn around and start picking up stones to throw back at them, you become like them. Amen? Somebody said, and this is not my quote, any fool can criticize and most fools do. Criticism actually says more about my critic than it says about me. It says where they're at. They're not happy with their lives. And you know, the only way that some people can lift themselves up is by pulling other people down. So don't respond because you become like them. Number four, I know I will never beat flesh with flesh. God has a way to overcome flesh because when people criticize, they're in the flesh. But don't you respond to it because you're also in the flesh. It becomes a battle of the flesh. God's answer to the flesh is the spirit. Walk in the spirit and you will not walk in the flesh. Walk according to the spirit, not the flesh. This is what um, Paul says in Romans. He says, repay no one. Now that's an absolute. Can't I just repay this one? No. <laughs> repay no one. Evil for evil. And then it says this, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. You notice I've underlined the word regard. See, the problem is that we get even by habit. It's called the survival instinct. Somebody lashes out at you, you in order to survive, you, you protect yourself by lashing out back at them. Amen? So this word regard, we have to plan ahead how we are going to respond. The word regard or respect in some translations means to perceive beforehand, to foresee, to think beforehand or to provide, make provision for this. You know what's coming. Now, make plans. Now, how you will respond then? Who are your critics? There are some people that just seem to be able to wind you up. You know what I mean? They just seem to know how to get your goat. <laughs> Who are they? And how do they provoke you? Don't wait until the moment to decide how you will act. That's what Paul's saying here. Very practical. The word of God is very practical. Otherwise, you'll be at the mercy of your emotions. Now, again, another one of my books, I, I mentioned about the difference between walking in the, in the flesh and walking in the spirit. You know, some people think it's a real spiritual, deep spiritual thing. You've got to pray and fast and go on retreats and all that sort of thing. No. The difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit is 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Because when something happens and you are, you know, that, 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 that is calling for a response from you, you can either respond according to the flesh or according to the spirit. You can respond according to who you are. And remember, in your flesh dwells no good thing. God has no program of reforming your flesh or changing your flesh. Your flesh will be what it is until the day you die. Amen. But now we have spirit. We're, we have the Holy Spirit. We have Christ's life in us. And, and we can choose to respond in the spirit. I can't. He never said I could. But he can. He always said he would. So I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, I can't, but you can. And by faith, I, I lay hold of your life. I, walk, I choose to walk in the spirit 
allow your life to flow through me and to respond through me in this situation. You will never beat the flesh with flesh. You'll only accelerate the problem. Okay, number five. My reputation is not important. People criticize you. Actually, your reputation is not important, not as important as you think. But my testimony is. Think about that for a moment. My testimony is important because it gives glory to God. People are watching me. They know I'm a Christian. They know that Christ is in me. And so they're watching me and, and the way I respond is my testimony that gives glory to God. My reputation is not as important as I used to think it was. In fact, you know, I used to think this, when somebody does an injustice to you, I used to think, God will vindicate me. You know what? Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he chooses not to. For reasons known best to him, he chooses not to. You can stand around waiting a long time for God to vindicate you. God never vindicated his own son while he was on earth. He ended up on, on the cross as a, like a criminal, the lowest of the low. God didn't vindicate him while he was on earth. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that he's the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So we do not pity self. We're not trying to protect our reputation. It's not that important actually, friends. We're not pitying ourselves, not defending ourselves, not talking about self-rights, etc. Why? Because we have come to a biblical estimate, estimate of self and that is we are crucified with Christ. We died with him. We were buried with him. We're now a new creation in Jesus. It's now Jesus that we want people to see. Amen? Do you remember Peter tried to get Jesus not to go to the cross? Save yourself. Pity yourself. Get behind me, Satan. And, and when he was on the cross, people tried to get him to come down. If you're the son of God, come down. Save yourself. If Jesus had saved himself, he would not have saved others. He would not have saved us. That's the principle of the cross. And, and Paul said this. In, you can read about it in 2 Corinthians 4 because Paul was constantly criticized by the Corinthians. And he said, you know, okay, death is working in us. Every time you put us down and so on, that's okay. Death is working in us, but life is working in you. Life is being spread to many. The life of Jesus is flowing out from us. A lot of people want a resurrection without a crucifixion. Amen? We've got to go beyond the cross to experience the resurrection life of Jesus. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm not interested in defending my reputation, but I am interested in the glory of God. I want God to be glorified. I was trying to think there was a, a, a verse in Peter. Um, I don't remember the exact words, but you may remember it where, where he says... Um, you know, when people do attack you, uh, make sure that you suffer for good and not for evil, for the, good, for the right things, so that people might ultimately glorify God. They might see the truth about you and give glory to God. I, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you can find it there in, in 1 Peter. Amen. Number six, I am accountable, but to the right people. I love this. That one Facebook friend who only pops up to disagree. <laughs> we all have one friend like that. Oh, yeah. 
Amen. The only time you hear from them is, I don't agree with it. Amen. I love him. I love the smile on his face. Anyway, I am accountable, but to the right people. So ask when you're criticised, is this constructive criticism? There's, there's a difference between constructive criticism, that, that's meant to build you up, make you a better person, to help you to grow. But destructive criticism is that which is designed to pull you down, to belittle you. Uh, it involves, you know, uh, gossip and slander and all those things that are designed to pull you down. So ask, is this criticism constructive? Has it come from someone who has my best interests at heart? That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, who were carnal Christians, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Like I said earlier on, there's not much significance attached to the criticism that comes from someone who does not really have your best interest at heart. But make yourself accountable to right people not trolls or mean-spirited people, right people, good people, people that love you and care about you. And, 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 I, and I hope that we've all got people like that in our lives. I, I have people like that in my family, friends, who would speak into my life when they need to because I know they care about me. They don't want me to go astray. They don't want me to go to get into trouble or anything like that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, says the book of Proverbs. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So friendships like this are mutually edifying relationships. People that speak into your life, you should be able to speak into their life too because you have that friendship and that maturity of relationship that you want to grow together. Where constructive criticism is reciprocated is given and received. That's a healthy relationship. If you've got relationships like that, thank God for them and hold on to them. Amen. Number seven. This is an important one, I think. Often criticism is a distraction. It's a distraction. It's to get you away from what God wants you to do. I notice that when, when God is working in my life and through me and doing something, often this kind of thing will come along. <coughs> I can tell you some stories where God has just used me wonderfully and, and it's all by his grace and then out of, just right out of the blue, some critic comes along and barrage, you think, where has that come from? I've just been reading through the book of Judges and I love Gideon. Gideon, as you know, was uh, a man who was uh, fearful and, and, and yet God taught him to trust him and he had this army, but God knocked it down to about 300 people coming against 120,000 Midianites. And God gave him a great victory, but, but he was still not finished. There were some leaders that needed to be dealt with, and he was chasing them. And while he was pursuing them, some of his own men from Ephraim come out and said to him, Why, uh, you know, why, have you, why didn't you tell us, why didn't you call us so that we could go with you? They didn't want to actually go with him. They wanted the glory of this great victory. You know, they wanted to share in the glory. And why did you leave us out? Well, for a start, God told him just to take the 300 men, but they weren't around when they went to battle anyway. But this is what, I love this, you know, this is what Gideon answered. He said, what have I done now in comparison with you? Because they had actually taken out two of the princes. 
He says, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? In other words, haven't you done better than us? You know, just sort of massage their ego a little bit, you know, for goodness sake, you know. Because they were holding him back from pursuing the enemy. They were actually distracting him from what God had called him to do. So, you know, there's no, there's no pride or, you know, we want the glory in, in, in Gideon. He just says, okay, well, you, you did better than us. Okay, yeah, okay, happy now. So that they can go on and finish the work that God has called them to do. Same with Nehemiah. You're familiar with the story of Nehemiah. God sent him to rebuild the walls of uh, Jerusalem, but there were people who were not happy. Samballat, Sabiah, the Samaritans, and they kept trying to get him away from the work. They said, we want to, we've got some things we want to discuss with you, and the things we're not happy about, things we need to talk about. They constantly sent messages to him. And Nehemiah responded this way, so I sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? How much time has been wasted trying to sort out silly little disputes and criticisms and, you know, people are not happy with this, not happy with that, so we're going to have a meeting, discuss it, and how much we could be doing good. Don't get distracted, friends, by criticism. Just walk on, walk on, like these two examples here. Number eight, if I respond, God won't a fact. I love this example. Look, look at this. The man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That means what we're talking about here, Moses is, apart from Jesus, the greatest example of meekness. There was nobody like him. But he was not like that naturally. It took Moses 40 years to learn not to be touched by the words of man. Forty years earlier, Moses dealt with people by his own hand. He, he murdered someone that crossed him or he didn't agree with. But here he made room for God and God moved suddenly. The situation here is his own brother and sister criticized him because he had married an Ethiopian woman. As if that was any of their business. You know? So the Bible says that they criticized him about his leadership. You're making all the, calling all the shots here. Aren't we important? Doesn't God speak through us? That's what they were saying. But the real issue was his marriage to this Ethiopian woman. Now, learn something about that. When people criticize you, what they usually criticize is not the real issue. There's an underlying issue. They try to find things to come against you because really the issue is not a real issue when you look at it, but it is to them. Amen? So they were criticizing Moses. But you know what Moses said? Nothing. Not a word. They were criticizing him. And then all of a sudden, God appeared. So he made room for God. God appeared. And you know what God said? He said, you, you, and you outside. <laughs> That's not good, friends. <laughs> that is not good. And God dealt with Aaron and Miriam. It seems like Miriam was the one that had the real problem. She was smitten with leprosy and for seven days had to go outside the camp until she was cleansed and was brought back in. Wow. 
Listen to what Paul says here. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Only God is qualified. Only God is qualified to do that. So step aside and allow him to do it if, if, when and how he pleases. There have been times, I've been in ministry for a long time, a long, long time. And I, you know, I've been under attack. I've seen God deal with people. And there are times when God doesn't deal with people. God says, it's good for you. For some reason, it's good for you. And that, will bring, that brings us to the next point. Here we go, number nine. Said we wouldn't be long, didn't I? Number nine. It may even be that God will use it. That God will use the criticism that's coming against you. Have you, have you come to terms with that? Remember when uh, Shimei came out and cursed David? He said to his men, as David said to his men, because they wanted, they said, do you want us to go and just lop his head off? won't take long. They were capable men. David said, let him alone and let him curse for so the Lord has ordered him. See, the background to that, as you know, David had committed adultery. David had murdered a man. And David was being dealt with by God. David was being chastened by the Lord to correct his behaviour. And, and, and he submitted to the chastening of God. He submitted to that. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens, not whom the Lord hates. Some Christians got a problem with chastening. No, don't, don't have a problem. If God is doing something in your life, it's for a greater purpose. He loves you. He cares about you. He's, he doesn't want you to self-destruct. He wants to move you to the destiny that he has for you. And even though David had done that, David was being corrected by by the Lord and um, he was being chased out of the kingdom at this stage by Absalom who took the throne from him by stealth and this man Shimei who was of the house of Saul hated David and he came out and, and, and cursed him and David said it's okay I know what's going on God is humbling me I need to be humbled I become so proud that I felt I had an entitlement to do what I did to take another man's wife and kill that man how proud how arrogant God has brought me low this is so good, this is so necessary, leave him alone. Actually, God dealt with him at the right time. But think about this. God used, I, I believe this, some people don't, but I believe that all things work together for good in the life of a believer. All things, even the bad things. God doesn't cause the bad things. Notice that, I'm not saying that. Bad things happen. But nothing can happen to me, nothing, unless God allows it. God is in control of my life. So if he allows it, he will use it. Remember this. The dagger, the knife that Judas stuck in the back of Jesus when he betrayed him. That betrayal pushed Jesus to his destiny. Amen? Handed him over to those who would crucify him so that we today would be washed and freed from our sins. Amen. The brethren of Joseph that hated him so much they would have killed him, but they sold him as a slave, moved him to the destiny 
that God had for him. And Joseph was able to say to him later, to them, you meant it for evil. You're not, you're not excused because of what you did, but God used it and made it work for good. That false accusation of Potiphar's wife that caused Joseph to end up in jail got him the very place where he would meet the butler of Pharaoh so that ultimately he would stand before Pharaoh and become the saviour of the world at that time. Amen. God is working in your life, friends. Even in the unpleasant things, if you have a right spirit, submit to the hand of God. You will see, you'll look back and see. You, you can't see it at the time, but you'll look back and you'll see. Okay, that brings us to the final point this morning. Number 10. I choose not to respond to criticism because I want to make room for God to do a miracle. For God to do a miracle. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now let me say this, Christians are not pacifists. Overcome there is a war word. We must aggressively fight evil and overcome it. How? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. You know, a lot of Christians use that verse as if it's, you know, it means, uh, okay, we've got to come and get together and really do warfare against Satan and, you know, like the ninja Christian. <laughs> we, we haven't got carnal weapons. We've got spiritual weapons. doesn't mean that. When you look at the context, the weapons Paul was talking about is meekness, the very thing we're talking here. He was under attack from all these uh, carnal Christians and these false apostles who were putting him down. But he was saying, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. I'm not going to fight flesh with flesh, but they're spiritual. Amen. Meekness. And he walked in meekness. And God used that apostle in an incredible way. There's nothing passive about the cross. We're not doormats, friends. Christians are not doormats. We didn't just lie down and say, yeah, just walk all over me. That's the Christian life. No, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Come back with the weapons that you have, which are not carnal, but mighty through God. Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He laid it down. He laid it down. And in doing so, he laid hold upon the most powerful weapon of good. And with it, he overcame evil. He overcame our sin. He cleansed us and set us free. Brought us into righteousness. God, sorry, good is more powerful than evil. Evil will never be overcome with evil. Flesh will never overcome flesh. Evil will only be overcome with good. What does that mean? How do we do that practically? Well, Paul mentions it in a few verses before. He says, bless those who persecute you. So you can't just remain in a state of neutrality. When someone has come against you, all these emotions are going around. You've got to do something. You've got to channel that energy. And Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless is from the Greek word eulogia, from two words, you or o, which means well and logo to speak. So it means to speak well. To bless someone is to speak well of them. To curse is to speak evil 
of someone, either publicly or privately. When you curse them, you're speaking against them. But we don't do that as Christians. We speak well. Even those who come against us, speak well of them. Speak well of them. That's what Jesus taught us to do. Bless them with your mouth. Jesus taught us to pray for our enemy. Ask God to do good, uh, to do that person good, to change them, to save them. So what good would that do? Here's two examples. Jesus on the cross. People that put him there. People that were mocking him and jeering at him and, and, and calling out at him. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Did that prayer get answered? Yes, it did. You read two occasions when that prayer got answered on Acts chapter 2. When, when Peter preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he said, you took Jesus. With wicked hands, you crucified him. You were the ones that did it. So he's talking to those who were around the cross. They said, what should we do? Repent. Be baptized, every one of you. 3,000 people got saved because of that prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they did. We think it was Peter's sermon. Yeah, that was a great sermon. But the back of that, there was the prayer. Father, forgive them. That made way for this miracle on the day of Pentecost. The next chapter, same again, another group of people. Peter says to them, you killed the Prince of Life. But he says, I know you did it in ignorance. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These were the ones. You did it. You did it ignorantly. And Jesus prayed for you. They too got saved. Amen. You make way for a miracle when you take spiritual weapons. These are the real spiritual weapons. The next example, Stephen. Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. And while they were throwing the stones and the rocks upon him, what did he say? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this against them. Did that get answered? Yes, it did. You know who was there? Paul. If he was not the ringleader, he was one of them. He was one of them. He was all for this. Two chapters later, he's on his way to kill a few more Christians. And Jesus appears to him, throws him to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. The greatest enemy, the arch enemy of the church becomes the greatest apostle. Why? Because this man prayed, Father, forgive him. Do not hold this against him. Wow. This is the life of Christ. You can't. He can. Who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Amen. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. People say, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to heap coals of fire on his head. But hang on, you've got to understand what he's saying here. You know, in those days, if a city was under siege, one of the tactics they had, they would have a tray full of hot coals. And as people were trying to climb the wall into the city, they would pour this 
tray of hot coals upon them. So what it did, it stopped them in their tracks. That's what Paul is saying here. You will stop people in their tracks. They will not expect you to love them when they're hating you. That you will not expect them, sorry, they will not expect you to do them good when they're doing you harm. It would stop them in their tracks. Amen. And it will render, render them powerless. It's God's own method for subduing his enemies. Some people think that it's the anger of God and the wrath of God that will turn people back to Jesus, but it's not. It's the goodness of God. It's the good, when, when, when people see the goodness of God, their hearts are melted. Their hearts are touched. And they're drawn by his love into his presence. So discover a legitimate need in that person's life. That one that's criticizing you, that one that's attacking you. Discover a legitimate need and meet it. Finish with this. When Jesus reigns over the earth, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. A child will play over a snake's nest, etc. That's when Jesus comes back. Well, when that happens before his return, when this lion becomes a lamb, amen, it means that he reigns now in us, in our lives. We sing, reign in me. Reign in me, Lord Jesus. Remember that old song? Reign in me, sovereign Lord, reign in me. Beautiful song. Well, that's what it means. He turns the lion into a lamb. And he uses these very things, the way we deal with them, to do miracles in the lives of other people. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Jesus, but we thank you even more for his life that is in us. That, Lord, we have been empowered for the totality of life, for whatever comes our way. Whoever may assail us or criticize us or attack us, we thank you that we're already equipped and empowered by the very life of Jesus to walk in the Spirit. So I pray that we will do that, Lord, and that we'll see you doing mighty things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Everybody said? Amen. 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 I think we've got some lunch now. Lindsay, you want to come up and share about that?